This episode of Astronomy Cast is brought to you by Swinburne Astronomy Online, the world's longest-running online astronomy degree program. Visit astronomy.swin.edu.au for more information. Astronomy Cast, episode 386, Orbiting Observers. Welcome to Astronomy Cast, our weekly facts-based journey through the cosmos, where we help you understand not only what we know, but how we know what we know. My name is Fraser Kane. I'm the publisher of University Day, and with me is Dr. Pamela Gay, a professor at Southern Illinois University Edwardsville and the director of CosmoQuest. Hey, Pamela, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Fraser? Good. And uh, and by the time you are listening to this, Pamela and I will be together in person in uh, in Ohio, in Columbus, Ohio, participating in a series of science outreach with a bunch as of our friends, do. as one does. So hopefully, with an astronaut. I know, right? Um, so look forward to a bunch of stuff we're going to try and do live on location uh, for you guys when we get a chance to hang out together and do some shows and answer some questions. So that'll be coming up in the feed. And and we will put all of the live stream links out on the CosmoQuest Astronomy Cast and our personal Twitters. Uh, Fraser is at F Kane. I am at Starstrider with a Y. Also, um, I've seen The Martian. It was really good. You should also see it in case you needed that permission. I give you permission. It's fantastic. Thank you. All right, let's move on to this episode. <laughs> this episode of Astronomy Cast is brought to you by Eighth Light Inc. Eighth Light is an agile software development company. They craft beautiful applications that are durable and reliable. Eighth Light provides disciplined software leadership on demand and shares its expertise to make your project better. For more information, visit them online at www.eighthlight.com. Just remember, that's www.thedigit8thlight.com. Drop them a note. Eighth Light. Software is their craft. The atmosphere keeps us alive and breathing, but it really sucks for astronomy. Fortunately, humanity has built and launched space telescopes that get above the pesky atmosphere where the skies are really clear. Let's take a look at the past, current, and future of orbital observation, aka probes. All right, Pamela, you picked this topic. Where, where are you going? What What is this about? These, well, it's, These orbital, so orbital observers you're, of which you speak. So, so we're currently in mission selection season, and anyone who turned in, tuned in to the weekly space hangout last week saw that we were talking about the down select that just happened that narrowed the field of possible missions down to two potential Venus uh, spacecraft, one potentially going to a Trojan asteroid, a whole bunch of different interesting, fairly inner solar system ideas. And uh, this got me thinking. You know, we haven't really done a good roundup of all that stuff that's out in the solar system um, currently sending us back, well, a whole lot of data. And I think also just, uh, I mean, in addition to the roundup, like, you know, which spacecraft are where and what spacecraft were where and which spacecraft are going to be where, but what are the sort of what are the things that they need to really think about when they're planning these kinds of missions? What are the parameters? Because in fact, you know, a big one came up with this selection process, the sort of lack of plutonium for powering these these 
probes into the outer solar system. And, and that's one of the reasons why everything that's potentially going to be targeted is going to be for the inner solar system. So there's a lot of um, sort of requirements that we should also talk a bit about. But where do you want to start? Well, uh, probably a good place to start is what's out there right now. Uh, so what's in our sky tonight, I guess. And by sky, I mean it might be on the other side of the sun, but it's out there somewhere. Sure. Yep. Um, so, so I think the old oldest mission still out there, uh, sending us back a ton of data, um, is is Cassini right now? So Cassini's out there. It was launched in 1998. Uh, I didn't even have a master's degree when this mission took off, and uh, it's really scary that that's how I apparently age date things. But it is, yeah. um, and. Uh, Cassini took its gravity assist to get on its way all the way out to Saturn, and it's in a continuing mission, uh, but it's in its final continuation. They are going to quite purposefully uh, suicide it into the atmosphere of Saturn in a few more years. But hey, we've gotten a good chunk of Saturn's orbit observed up close and personal. And Cassini was like the last of one of the great observing, orbiting missions, right? With Galileo, um, I can try to think of any other missions that were orbiting. You know, we had the, the Voyager series head off into deep space, and I guess we're still communicating with them. But Cassini was really this flagship sensor suite with a ton of amazing scientific instruments, cameras, etc. Not a lot else out there that's as sophisticated as Cassini is. Well, and part of that is, is it built on that already tried and true technology that was originally developed for the, well, Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 missions. So we have this defined platform, known technology, just upgrade it to the modern era and uh, set off and explore. It's, it's always easier when you don't have to recreate the wheel. Which sort of leads down a bit of a... a theory that I have, which is that I wish more of the spacecraft use that sort of reusable platform, that they use an, an orbiter style platform, but then they put just different science instruments and send it to a different target. But, you know, as opposed to necessarily reinventing the wheel with each with with each mission. But and we do see a little bit of that. It's not as as much recreating the wheel as you might think right off the bat. So so a good pair of examples is there's Mars Express, uh, which is still out there, still happily doing its thing at Mars. And then you have its sister spacecraft, which is no longer doing its thing at Venus, which was Venus Express. And so between those two spacecraft, you have very similar names and you also have very similar spacecraft. Uh, Venus Express only recently retired. It retired back in January. And um, one of the reasons that I think it, we have to give tribute to and we push Mars spacecraft as long as possible because they also get used as communication satellites. So we have 2001 Mars Space Odyssey or just Odyssey, but in tribute of, of those classic books, it's still out there orbiting, taking not the best data, but taking data on Mars. But it's a relay satellite also uh, getting us data back from Curiosity curiosity and uh, opportunity and had Beagle survived uh, when it got carried there by Mars Express it didn't survive but it would also be relaying its data back 
And Mars Odyssey gave us some of the best evidence for the large amounts of water underneath the the surface of the of Mars. We it turned a you know, we really learned about these vast ice deposits on Mars. Although now, of course, we've seen, in fact, liquid water potentially flowing on the surface of Mars. But uh, flowing is a strong word. Seeping, seeping across. <laughs> right. I'll give you seeping. Sure. Oozing out of the sides of some craters. But that's the next episode. We're going to talk about that next time. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Um, right. So we've got so you you've clearly shifted to Mars, um, skipped uh, the asteroid belt as if. Well, you know. I was going in chronological order. And OK, you did. Sure. So, Let's so, do it. so we had Mars Odyssey got there in 2001. Mars Express uh, launched 2003, uh, arriving late that year. Um, Opportunity Rover was another 2003, this time arriving in 2004 in January. So there was this great beginning of this century. Let's just send all the things to Mars, um, followed by uh, Rosetta got launched in 2004, but it just got there. So we can talk about it later. Um, but Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, which has the sister spacecraft Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, uh, Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, it was launched in 2005. It's still up there. It's still doing its thing. And what you see with this Mars, 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 Mars is that era when we were planning to get astronauts there, when the budgets were a little higher and the goals and missions that we were mandated by Congress were a little loftier and a little more funded. Um, So as the funding has been scaled back, we've had to scale back our dreams a little bit. And uh, we don't see launches nearly as frequently and we don't bombard single worlds with quite so many robots anymore. Well, it also reflects the thinking at the time a decade ago was that the place to look for life in the solar system was Mars. And that all of the other places were, you know, potentially you know, not as likely for life. But now with the discovery of of these sort of full oceans on, under the ice on Europa, on potentially Enceladus, maybe even Callisto, and and the fact that some of this liquid water actually gets up to the surface of the of these worlds, there's more and more emphasis being placed on on potentially sending orbiter missions to these places. So and we'll talk a bit about that in the in the future. So, so yeah, we, we had this, this great era of Mars and then launching things all over the rest of the solar system with the 2004 launch of Rosetta, which uh, has finally arrived uh, several months ago at 67P Churamov Gerimesco, or Chirigiri is pronounceable. And uh, then New Horizons uh, took off in 2006. So there was this whole, let's just go all the places. 2007, we launched Dawn, which went to, to Vesta and then Ceres. And uh, now we're in the era of seeing other nations uh, start to fill in the science that we're not still building space probes for. And that's that's a kind of interesting change to get to watch. Yeah, it's Chinese missions, Indian missions. So so we saw in 2007, America launched the Artemis mission. And then after that, it all became other countries. So you had Chang'e 2, which was the Chinese mission that went to the moon. And then this this is the mission that has the most awesome orbital 
work I have seen in the inner solar system. So it, it arrived in the moon in October 2010. And then from there, it went to a Lagrange point. Then it went to an asteroid, 4179 Titanus. And uh, then it decided, hey, I'm going to go get myself in heliocentric orbit instead. And so now it's out there in heliocentric orbit. And that's it, though. Well, yeah, but that's still kind of awesome for one little spacecraft. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So is that the sort of the full suite of spacecraft that are currently orbiting or buzzing around objects right now? There's a few more, but we tend to forget about them because they don't produce cool pictures and they're not their nation's first big ones. So I'm going to destroy the pronunciation of this. You may know how to pronounce it better. Mangalan, Mangalayan, the the Indian probe that is at Mars and has sent back some pretty cool images. We just call it MOM. That works. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mars so, Orbiter mission. But yeah, yeah. So so it's it's there showing that that India does have interplanetary capacity. It's not the highest resolution mission out there, but it is really a test bed for what this new exploring nation is capable of. Uh, Chang'e 1 and 2 have been followed up by Chang'e 3, which was a lander on the moon. And then Chang'e 5 is is also now hanging out at the moon. So China is now following our lead and covering other worlds in robots, as one does. Uh, there's a few spacecraft that are orbiting the sun. Uh, well, there's, yeah. the, there's the stereo spacecraft, which are orbiting ahead and behind uh, Earth in its orbit. Uh, and there's a bunch of stuff that's in, I guess, uh, you know, various Lagrange points. So, you know, we'll skip the stuff that's actually orbiting Earth because there's like 1,300 of those. We'll talk about other stuff and then we lost messenger yeah earlier, which is too bad and we lost venus express right and and one of the things that doesn't get talked about nearly enough is we're slowly but surely uh losing our suite of earth imaging satellites in polar orbits that are needed for weather so so we have some we just don't have as many as weather forecasters might like and so if if you find that um, your weather forecasts aren't as good as they might have been a few years ago, it's not that our understanding of the weather isn't as good, although that that is a part of it. Our planet is undergoing radical change and it's hard to keep the models up to date. Right. As we're Venus forming Earth. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Venusian forming. Is that maybe how you yeah. put it? Yeah. But uh, there, we just also don't have the full suite of satellites. So we've talked a bit about what's out there right now, but I think what people are going to be very interested in is is what's coming. And and I think, you know, the new selection of missions is a great time to talk about some of the the kinds of spacecraft uh, that are that are coming out. But we talk about them and let's also talk about the the Europa mission, which has been, you know, is is pretty well and truly selected at this point. Um, so so I have to admit, this is where, for me, spacecraft are dead until they have first light, uh, or at least unborn, I guess is a good way to put it. I, I had a spacecraft I needed for my dissertation uh, fail to function, and since then I've been a little overly cautious, you might say, in It's like, it's like the terrestrial planet finder. Yeah, yeah. All of these things, we get our hopes and aspirations uh 
pinned upon and then it doesn't happen. So do they do they even exist for you when they've been launched or they not? do once no. they've been launched, once they, they're on their way. So Juno totally alive to me. I, I believe in Juno. Um, but the Europa probe, part of me is like Congress can still kill it. Mm-hmm. So we do have to be cautious and careful. All right. Fine. So let's then then let's talk a bit about uh, what is sort of the overall philosophy that's driving planetary exploration, especially the orbiters and probes into the future. And uh, so, you know, there was a selection process that just happened. What are some of the priorities that that the scientists are dealing with? So so we have. a twofold issue that we're dealing with. One is the mandates that we have coming down from Congress and the president. Then the other, and that includes the fact that plutonium keeps not getting created, that that's kind of a congressional decision. And then the other is uh, we set priorities using the decadal surveys. And uh, it's starting to get to be time to start thinking about doing a new decadal survey. Uh, But we are still going on the priorities of the last one. And uh, some of our priorities are to start to understand those icy worlds in the outer solar system. And this is where we start looking at how do we get to Europa. This is where we have successfully looked to push the Juno mission forward. Uh, Then we also start looking at, at, so from Congress and the president, we have this vision of moon, asteroid, Mars as places of exploration, potential commercial venues. So you see in the mission selections, let's keep looking at ways to keep exploring asteroids. We have the OSIRIS-REx mission with its sample return to Bennu coming up in the coming years. Uh, that mission is well under construction. But that doesn't count, right? Spacecraft under construction can get canceled, too. It, it's true. That one's more real to me because I do get funded as part of OSIRIS-REx, so disclosure, I guess. Right. Um, so when you have money from it, it makes it a little bit more real than when you're simply hoping on it. Um, but but there's also always that question of where don't we have any modern data? And Venus is definitely one of those places where we don't have modern data. The Magellan probes back at, well, the Magellan probe back in the 90s, side radar great job getting us maps of its mysterious surface but technology is better maybe now we can figure out how to get something that lives a little bit longer on the surface maybe we can get a little bit deeper down into the clouds using balloons or other technologies and this is where we're starting to figure out how do we get back to venus and We'll get a little bit more data on this planet. We're not hopefully going to actually turn our planet into, but let's face it, understanding its greenhouse will certainly help us understand our own world. Yeah, I mean, you see the pictures that came back from the Venera probes when they landed those on on the surface of Venus, and they lasted for like, I think the longest was like just under an hour, and then they all died. So it would be great to have something that could last a little longer, maybe stay up in the cloud tops, use ground-penetrating radar. That would all be terrific. Let's... Let's do that. So what is the, I don't know, like what is the big scientific emphasis right now though? Are you saying it's like looking for places that we haven't seen yet? Or is there sort of a theme to what, you know, are people looking for for liquid water? Are they looking for evidence of, of, of extraplanetary life? What what are scientists really looking for? So so there's the the follow the water, which I think is actually happening in in all of the different space agencies. With with NASA, we definitely have the journey to Mars hashtag 
going out and it's not just a hashtag. It's actually kind of an ideal. The let's go there. Let's get the rovers following the story of the water. Uh, Curiosity is out there doing one set of experiments. The Mars 2020 rover is going to land in as different an area as possible. So so Curiosity is in Gale Crater where it can explore a very old part of Mars that potentially had water in the past. Uh, With Mars 2020, they're looking to select a site that is undergoing constant erosion, revealing um, the surface over. And basically, it's just like when you go fossil hunting. You want to go somewhere where the cliff is crumbling down. Well, we're going to go look to see where the sand dunes are blowing the ground away, revealing potential organics, potential, may we say, fossils from the past, allowing us to understand what the past on Mars was like. Based on the all of the evidence that's come out recently, uh, you know, the new close-up images uh, that Rosetta has taken of 67P, the new images of Ceres, the new images from Pluto, from New Horizons, uh, you know, where would you like more orbiters sent? I, I have to admit the more orbiters is something that on the inner solar system – I'm pretty good with the suite of orbiters we have. Venus, it it needs something up above to linger longer because its surface is kind of death. Um, But for the inner solar system where we don't need the radioactive isotopes, I want to go figure out what the heck that white stuff on Ceres is. And like many others, I'm deeply concerned that we won't get a definitive answer from an orbiter. We need to like go land, take a sample and do the, yeah, robotic equivalent of lick the rock. Uh, (laughs) Is it salt? Is it ice? We don't know. And can we find out with that spacecraft? We don't yet know. I want to know what is that weird mountain on Ceres? And, and so I think it's it's time for us to take the idea of Philae, execute it with uh, harpoons that don't have to live in deep space for quite so long, um, and uh, go stab ourselves into the surface of more worlds and see what's there to be sampled. And uh, so I want to see more and more. Let's go stab rocks. I mean, there there are some pretty intriguing, uh, you know, some of the concepts that were recently chosen. Like one was to send a, a spacecraft to a, a metal asteroid, which would be pretty fascinating because that's a wor- kind of world that we've never really explored. Although I wonder what it would be like to try and stab your harpoons into, into metal. Um, yeah, I think there you're going to look. <laughs> Can we magnet ourselves yeah. to? I don't yeah. know. Yeah, that would probably. That's a good idea. <laughs> um, uh, right. So you talked about about series. I mean, there are some are there some mysteries? I mean, I would love to see some, you know, I would like to see that Europa mission. Uh, and and Europa. that that starts get to the the we need the more plutonium. And uh, we still know almost nothing about Neptune and Uranus. And and we need to have orbiters on these worlds. Well, not on but around these worlds and as we enter the era of commercial space it's going to be awesome to watch companies like planetary resources start to solve the problems of how do you move asteroids how do you land on little itty bitty tiny things can we actually burrow through them the way we'd like and the way science fiction authors have been talking for 
well, generations. Um, those things are going to start to happen in the next couple of decades, and we'll hopefully be around to report on them. What's a place that we, I mean, you talked a bit about Venus for sure, that we don't have a lot of information about Venus. Right. What are some other places that we just we just don't know really anything about that we really should get a spacecraft there? I've heard, I mean, I've heard Emily Lakdawalla call for a, for a probe to Uranus, mostly because she likes to say probe to Uranus, but I think she does feel like there's some pretty good science there to, to be exploring some of the, the ice giants. I, I, I think we definitely need to go to Uranus or Neptune. I, uh, I think there's also a lot of good cases for going to Neptune so that we can also study its moon Triton and, and get this comparison between, uh, well, Pluto and Triton. But uh, it gets so hard to narrow things down right now because the, the question is, what is it that you want to learn? Are, are you looking to try and pioneer manned space exploration? Well, if that's what you're looking to do, asteroids and Mars and the moon is where it's at. We need to figure out how to dig. We need to figure out how to safely get in and out of those caves on, on the moon and Mars. Um, if it's pure science, if it's the search for life, we need to be going out to Titan and Europa and Enceladus and all of these worlds where we see different chemical reactions, not entirely alien to the idea of life. I think there's a lot of questions that, you know, a lot of regular people might not think are super interesting, but to scientists, they're really core. You know, what did the early formation you know, how did the solar system form? What did it look like in its earliest times? How did things change over time? You know, what are some of the processes, the geologic processes that are happening on these worlds? They have nothing to do with life. They're really just fundamentally understanding how our solar system came to be and 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 how it's been changing over time. And, you know, a lot of the kinds of instruments on these spacecraft are designed to answer those kinds of questions. And it's really kind of amazing to think how far we've come. Uh, when we were in, I think, about fourth grade in 84, you may have been a grade or two ahead of that, when Halley's Comet first came through. That was when we first tried sending spacecraft to a comet, and they got nowhere near Halley compared to like what Rosetta is doing today. So in our lifetime, we've seen advancement after advancement, and it's it's today that we're now looking to the okay how do we start harvesting this ice how do we start taking advantage of these asteroids as things we can move by our own manpower or robot power what do you think about the sort of ongoing advancement both of miniaturization of the actual technology that's used in these satellites and also the decreased launch costs that we're potentially seeing with through places like SpaceX and you know some of the other launch providers. You know, what impact is that going to maybe have on on our ability to sense the solar system? The the big missions, unfortunately, uh, you can only miniaturize things so much because you are limited by the well, my lens needs to be this big or my reflecting area needs to be this big. That's kind of defined by the rules of optics. But in terms of a lot of basic probes, um, we're going to first be able to get better idea of our own planet from college students launching CANSATs. 
we're then going to slowly but surely be able to send, instead of just one big old spacecraft to Mars that we cram all the instruments on, imagine sending something that instead of dropping a rover, drops 10 very well-tested CANSATs that we know will succeed. Suddenly we have a lot more students, a lot more early career researchers that are pioneering new ideas that maybe you can't quite get to via the current funding requirements. Right. And that's sort of, it's the letting a thousand flowers bloom, right? It's this idea of getting a lot of ideas out there to test out and then take the ones that really work best and use those across the solar system. And that almost, it does feel a bit like it's uh, sort of log jammed, you know, with just Congress having to approve this mission or that mission, and things take a long time. As you said, they take decades for these missions to come from idea to actual implementation. If we could shorten that, that would be great. And and if it takes us 30 years to test bed the technology for a major Mars mission, but five years to pioneer that CANSAT, we'll be able to take advantage of almost modern technology for the first time ever. And uh, for those of us who kind of lament the sad state of memory on so many of these spacecraft, we want all the data, all of it. So send so many more terabytes, send so much uh, more powerful antenna to just get everything back, uh, not in years, but maybe in days. Wouldn't that be awesome? Absolutely. Um, it would be... I. That I think is going to be the big revolution is is just getting these smaller, less expensive, more specific, you know, satellites to a lot of places. And I think hopefully if, if people can figure that out, we're going to get a lot of really interesting data. Although it's probably just going to be a million more questions that's then going to require new spacecraft to try and even answer those questions. I mean, just these white spots on series alone is as you said that's a mission that's a question it drives me crazy <laughs> <I know. laughs> how, how could a spacecraft have gone to series found something so unusual and not been able to provide enough of an answer that people could know what's going on there and and satellites beget information that begets the need for new satellites so it really is space probes all the way down that's exactly what it is and, well that's a good place to stop that it, it is and onward and upward into the future i guess awesome all right well thanks pamela thank you thanks for listening to astronomy cast a non-profit resource provided by astrosphere new media association fraser kane and dr pamela gay you can find show notes and transcripts for every episode at astronomycast.com you can email us at info at astronomycast.com Tweet us at AstronomyCast, like us on Facebook, or circle us on Google+. We record our show live on Google+, every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, or 2000 Greenwich Mean Time. If you miss the live event, you can always catch up over at CosmoQuest.org. If you enjoy AstronomyCast, why not give us a donation? It helps us pay for bandwidth, transcripts, and show notes. Just click the donate link on the website. All donations are tax-deductible for U.S. residents. You can support the show for free, too. Write a review or recommend us to your friends. Every little bit helps. Click Support the Show on our website to see some suggestions. To subscribe to the show, point your podcatching software at astronomycast.com podcast.xml or subscribe directly from iTunes. 
Our music is provided by Travis Searle, and the show is edited by Preston Gibson.